Well, hello there. It is great to see you again, and welcome back to another episode of Closing Arguments. I'm your host and moderator, Ryan Ruff, and we've got the star of our show, Mr. John Razumich of Razumich & Associates, or Jack, as most know him by, joining us here in just a moment for another criminal law-related discussion. Uh, look, hey, if you joined us for our prior episodes, we took a deep dive into, you know, really a forgotten legal landmark. This is the the monumental court case of the United States versus ship. We had a two-part you know, two different parts, rather two different episodes to cover such a big case, all the details that went into it. You know, if you're familiar or maybe not familiar with that episode, I'd recommend circling back and checking that one out. But boy, today is a good one. I'm excited about today because, uh, you know, when, when Jack and I were talking about planning this show out, we knew we wanted to hit this case. We knew we had some things to, you know, tackle before we got to this given episode, but this is an exciting one because boy, is it such a curious case. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the curious case of the hot dog man. We'll get into exactly what that is, who the hot dog man is, how this case plays out here in just a moment. But boy, I just had to kind of frame it up and let you know I personally am excited to get into this one. Uh, hey, but with that being said, let's go ahead and bring Jack out, get today's conversation rolling and get into this curious case. Jack, good to see you. How are you doing today? Not too bad, Ryan. Good to be back as always. Absolutely. Absolutely. So here we are, you know, we're, we're going through different criminal law cases on this show. This is one that I know you wanted to get into because it is such a, it's got such a peculiar, you know, element going on here. Uh, we're talking about the curious case of the hot dog, man. Why don't we start with a high level overview for us? Walk us through some of the background of this case, set the scene for us a little bit here, Jack. Absolutely. And like you pointed out, this is one of the cases that I wanted to do very early on when we started setting the show up, because it's actually one of mine. Um, mm -hmm. We got a really good response back uh, from our last two episodes dealing with the United States versus ship and the, the breakdown of how a case worked its way through the Supreme Court. So it felt like this was the exact right time to do this case. So the, the common... The, the, the way that we've referred to it locally in the legal community is the curious case of the hot dog man, because the the defendant in this case owned a hot dog cart, and it not only not only did the defendant own a hot dog cart, there's a junior hot dog trainee, there's a grand jury, there's politics, and there's a prostitute and perjury all involved in this case. This case literally has something for everybody involved in it. And I was not involved in every single stage of this case. Um, I was involved for basically the trial level situation. Uh, this case, despite the fact that it was initially filed in August of 2014, I kid you not, it just finally reached the end of all of its legal appeals, legal processes, and is finally done as of last month it's been about two wow. weeks since this case was just completely put to bed on this oh my goodness and and for the benefit of people that are listening um i, I don't mean to sound i don't mean to treat this case like like it's not serious it was a very serious situation for mm -hmm. uh for the defendant as well as the people who were involved in this sure. case one of the main reasons that i can talk about the facts of this case are if you'll recall to uh one of the one of, i think it might have been our first or second episode uh, we talked about the concept of post-conviction relief. One mm -hmm. of the things that comes up in post-conviction relief is if a defendant sues their trial attorney for ineffective assistance to counsel, that's one of the basis for post-conviction relief. The flip side of that is under Indiana law, by operation of law, that actually waives your attorney-client confidentiality. 
Now, I'm not going to discuss anything particularly sensitive or something that technically would not have been part of the public record on this, uh, but we do have a little bit more security to be able to discuss this case simply by merit of the fact that Mr. Kadrabak is part of his um, appeals process. He did file that PCR for ineffective assistance of counsel. Uh, we'll get into that because the way that I had to be brought to court to testify about that is is just another interesting piece of this puzzle. Um, but that does allow for us to speak about it. The case officially is State of Indiana versus Robert Kadravac. Uh, as I said, this is one of my cases. So this is this is a great example to kind of see start to finish what the process is involved in in how our office approaches a criminal case. Uh, how most attorneys will approach a criminal case today. So I'm definitely very, very excited to start talking about this one. Yeah, absolutely, Jack. So, uh, you know, I appreciate you kind of framing that up for us, you know, your involvement in the case as a whole. Obviously, we're going to get into that, what that looked like. But set it, set, the, set the scene for us, if you will. You know, you did a fantastic job of doing that, really bringing us into the moment when we discussed United States first ship. Why don't you do, do just that. Set the scene for us. Bring us into what that moment and what really kickstarted uh, the crime that took place here. Absolutely. This entire case started way back on June 22nd, 2014. So we're talking a good eight years ago at this point in time. On that day in question on uh, in Indianapolis on the South Meridian Bar Circuit, right across the street from the Slippery Noodle, uh, five people, Anjay Walker, Latoya Gregory, Collins Grigsby, Raman Hunter, and Daniel Island had all finished drinking uh, and dancing and just a night of general celebrating. And because the bars were closing, we're talking about three o'clock in the morning, roughly at this point in time, they decided that, uh, well, they, they, they couldn't, they, they didn't have to go home, but they couldn't stay at the bar. So they were on their way out. Um, Mr. Walker and Mr. Grigsby decided that they were hungry. And at this point in time, because there are a lot of um, food stands out, uh, you know, there's, there's not a lot else out right there, but there are food stands. And one of those food stands was a hot dog cart, more specifically a hot dog cart owned by Robert Kadravac and his mother. Now, Mr. Kadravac was working that night, but he wasn't at the hot dog stand when Mr. Walker and his friends showed up. A younger gentleman by the name of Frank McCampbell, who was a friend of Mr. Kadravex, was working at the hot dog stand that night. So Mr. Walker and, and his friends all show up at the hot dog stand. And because they were a little bit intoxicated at the moment in time, let's, let's just be perfectly fair on this. Uh, they were shouting contradictory orders at Mr. Campbell and he's trying, he's, you know, he's running around, he's doing the best that he possibly can. And at some point in time, um, a jar of jalapenos that they have on the hot dog stand gets upset. Like it, it, it tips over. Um, there was some discussion and disagreement over whether or not it completely spilled um, or whether or not it just sort of dripped out a few dribbles on it. What we know is that the, the hot dog, the jalapeno juice got onto Anjay Walker's shoes. And this was apparently the single most catastrophic thing on the face of the earth because uh, Mr. Walker and his friends got incredibly angry about this. Uh, there was a lot of back and forth about demanding a refund. By this point in time, uh, Mr. McCampbell had already given them some food, so you know, he wasn't going to refund the money on it. So there's more shouting. Uh, at some point in time, someone, and it was never really completely 
determined who, but someone grabbed, tried to grab a bag of chips off of the car saying, well, I'll just take this instead of a refund. Mr. McCampbell at that point in time, because he believes that he's being robbed, shoves somebody and an entire fight breaks out. About this time is where Mr. Kadrovac comes back on the scene. He's not been, you know, he's been maybe, I don't know, 50 feet away, something like that, smoking a cigarette, realizes there's commotion going on. So we now have a situation where we've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven people are now fighting at a hot dog stand over a refund because someone got jalapeno juice on their shoes. Um, One thing led to another. And at one point in time, everybody goes down into this big pile, like a big football tackle pile. And what ends up happening is when they get out of the pile, the one thing that everyone is completely in agreement with is that Mr. Kadrovac has uh, several cuts on his hands. Uh, Mr. McCampbell has a couple of cuts. And Andre Walker, unfortunately, has a knife sticking out of his right temple. Um, mm. he, he got stabbed in the head. And he's, he's kind of, he, everyone's getting up off of the ground. And at this point in time, Mr. Walker has that knife sticking out of his head. Miss um, Gregory realizes, she's the first one that realizes that, that uh, Mr. Walker has been injured, uh, screams for help. The police come out there, and uh, that's basically the very early setting for for what happened with regards to the crime. Wow. So, so all right, you, you framed it up beautifully. It leaves the big unknown. How did the knife get lodged in the temple of Mr. Walker? Who brought the knife onto the scene? Uh, and where do we go from here? These are these are the three things kind of circling around in my head right now. Jack, take us through. Uh, you know the the where these questions really lead us to and where the investigation really begins. The investigation began pretty much right away. I mean, you very much have a situation where Frank McCampbell and Robert Kadrak are saying, those guys tried to rob us. You know, we gave them food. They demanded money back. They were trying to steal stuff off of our cart. And then you've got Mr. Walker, you know, Mr. Walker, of course, is not making any statements. He's very seriously injured and has to go to the hospital. But Mr. Walker's friends who are, you know, one, still intoxicated, two, extremely furious right now, are making the argument that, um, you know, they, in good faith, tried to buy a hot dog, and they got attacked, and now their buddy might be dying, um, and the police better do something about this. So here's where the politics of this process come in. As I said, this case was fought, this incident, these incidents happened on June 22nd, 2014. Not long before that, we had a police action shooting here in Marion County where officers with the Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department were involved in an altercation with a young black man by the name of Aaron Bailey, the details of that are not significantly important to this case outside of the background concept. But what happened is Mr. Bailey was shot by white police officers and charges were not filed at that time. So what we have here is very quickly on the heels of that, we have a situation where you have two white hot dog vendors and five young black individuals and one of the black individuals has been stabbed in the head from a political standpoint because we'd had protests over the Aaron Bailey situation 
the Marion County Prosecutor's Office knew, knew that they needed to do something. So what they ended up doing is in August of 2014, the week of August of 2014, they impaneled what's referred to as a grand jury. And very briefly, to explain the difference, uh, to, to explain what a grand jury is very briefly, charges in the state of Indiana can be brought by what's referred to as a charging information, which is how nearly all criminal charges are brought in Indiana. It's basically just a fill-in-the-blank form where the prosecutor puts the name, the offense they want to charge, and a couple of other identifying features, and signs mm -hmm. it. That's referred to as a charging information. The other way that charges can be brought is by grand jury indictment. And a grand jury indictment, what is involved is the prosecutor's office will impanel a grand jury. They get summoned in for jury duty, just like if they were at an actual criminal case. But the grand jury process is extremely one-sided. And when I say one-sided, I mean it's non-adversarial. It is absolutely confidential. Uh, the prosecutor's office has complete control over the grand jury process. The old joke that you'll hear people say is that the the grand jury would indict a ham sandwich if the prosecutor wanted them to. <laughs> That's not as much of a joke as people think they do because the grand jury is only allowed to consider the charges that the prosecutor asks them to consider. They only hear the information the prosecutor's office wants to give to them. And there's no cross-examination. There's no... Uh, adversarial process. So what happens is an example would be if, if, if a guy's caught climbing out of an apartment window with a television in his hands and that goes in front of the grand jury, but the prosecutor tells the grand jury, hey, um, I want you to consider this man for indictment on possession of cocaine despite the fact that it's very clear this guy might have been burgling that apartment, the grand jury can't return an indictment on that. They could only return an indictment on the issue of the possession of cocaine. And if there's no evidence for that, the grand jury won't return an indictment. The prosecutor gets to go on television and say, well, you know, we put it in front of the grand jury because we just weren't sure what was going to happen. And um, then the grand jury said no case. So I guess we're not filing anything. It's a great political cover situation for any type of hot topic or hot button mm -hmm. issue. Um, that's why you usually see police action shootings go before grand juries because the prosecution has that complete control over the situation and can control what information they get to see, what what charges they get to consider. Um, so this case gets kicked to the grand jury. That's where Mr. Kajavak's problems technically start. Um, Mr. Kajavak had this amazing coincidence as he would put it about always sort of being exactly where he needed to be when someone needed a good talking to about the facts of this case um most people would consider that to be witness tampering he thought it was just a coincidence that the stars were always shining upon him hmm interesting so so the grand jury, um, the, the grand jury process, they questioned, uh, they questioned Mr. Walker's friends. Mr. Walker, of course, was not in any physical condition to provide testimony. Sure. Um, they questioned the various police officers who were involved in the initial investigation, the paramedics, mm -hmm. EMTs, things of that na nature. And they also wanted to 
tested. They also wanted to question Mr. Kadrovac and Mr. Campbell. Now, Mr. Kadrovac, being aware that he was the subject of the grand jury investigation, hired a law firm. It was not our law firm. We were not involved in the case at this point in time. But he hired a law firm to file what is known as a motion to quash uh, the grand jury subpoena. Effectively, he argued, um, I have a constitutional right to refuse to provide testimony that may or may not incriminate myself. I am exercising that right. You cannot make me testify in front of your grand jury. So mm -hmm. he's out. He has that ability as the subject of the grand jury investigation to basically say, I'm not participating. Other people do not have that. A, a grand jury summons is the same as a summons for the superior court. You okay. have to show up. If you don't show up, they'll send the cops out to arrest you for contempt of court. So Frank McCampbell has to go and testify. Mm -hmm. the, the, the night before he goes to testify, Mr. Kadrivak is, again, coincidentally, just happens to be in the right place at the right time. But this time, he's got some really important evidence that he wants Mr. McCampbell to take to the grand jury with him. And that evidence is an affidavit signed by a woman by the name of uh, Jody Kinslow, claiming that she saw the entire thing happen and that she saw one of Mr. Walker's friends grab the knife try to stab Mr. Kadrivac and accidentally stab Mr. Walker by accident. So Jody mm. Kinslow is not there to provide testimony, but somehow Mr. Kadrivac has this affidavit signed by Jody Kinslow, which he gives to Frank McCampbell to take with him to the grand jury, which he turns over as part of his testimony. It was marked as uh, grand jury exhibit 24. That becomes extremely important towards the later part of the case, but um, that was the next step with that is they put it in front of the grand jury. Mm -hmm. They were asked, I, I, I do not know affirmatively how many charges the grand jury was asked to consider that information is considered confidential. Even after an indictment is turned in the only portions that a defendant is entitled to are the portions of the grand jury proceeding that are relevant to the charges that were ultimately, uh, ultimately, ultimately filed on the indictment. And any witness testimony that goes along with that. What I do know is that the grand jury was at a bare minimum asked to consider the charges of attempted murder, which at the time was a class A felony in the state of Indiana, as well as aggravated battery, which at the time was a class B felony uh, in the state of Indiana. Okay. Because on August 22nd of uh, 2014, the grand jury retained, it's referred to as a true bill. It is a true bill of uh, finding, uh, indicting Robert Kadrivac for one count of attempted murder and one count of aggravated battery. It was filed with the Marion Superior Court the following Monday, because that was a Friday when that indictment was came back. Mm -hmm. And that started, that was, that was the background of everything led up to this case being a thing. Got it. Got it. So the indictment is laid in. They're coming after Kadrovac. This is where I would imagine Kadrovac starts to build up that wall, really build his defense uh, in going going into trial with this. So what does this process then look for, you know, look like? And and where do where does Rasmus and Associates enter the picture here, Jack? Pretty soon afterwards, uh, mm -hmm. Mr. Kadrovac, there was a warrant issued for Mr. Kadrovac's arrest on um August 22nd, with the filing of the grand jury indictment, there was an arrest warrant that was issued at the same time as a probable cause warrant. 
Mr. Kadrovac was picked up without any issues. He didn't put up a fight. He didn't struggle, you know, didn't run. Um, he went quietly with the police. He had his initial hearing on August 26 of 2014. Initially, a public defender from the Marion County Public Defender Agency was appointed to represent him. Uh, Mr. Kadrovac's bond was set at that time in the amount of $100,000 surety, which meant that he would have had to have given $10,000 to a bail bondsman to be released from jail. Um, so he sat there for a few weeks. The next most important thing that came up with this case that that really makes it curious is on September 2nd of 2014, the Marion County Prosecutor's Office filed a motion for competency to stand trial determination. That's not something that you normally see. That's a precursor to the insanity defense. Mm, interesting. And that's not normally something you see the prosecutor's office file. Yeah. Because as an affirmative defense, that's normally something that the defense is trying to raise. The defense is normally trying to raise the issue of, right. hey, my guy is not responsible for this mm -hmm. because he has this defense over here. Mm -hmm. The way that the system works with regards to a competency to stand trial, either side can raise that defense. So the prosecution can raise that defense just the same as, as mm -hmm. the defense can raise it. It's just extremely unusual to actually see the state do that on their own. Yeah. And, and we got involved not long afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, we got involved, according to my notes, we got involved on September 24th of 2014. So, uh, about three weeks after the state files its competency determination. By this point in time, uh, Mr. Kadrovac has been released from jail. His his mother was able to put up the bond because apparently there's a lot of money in the hot dog stand. Um, <laughs> so that's there, there's your Arrested Development reference. For right. <laughs> there you go. So she bonds him out. He gets out. And I had my first meeting with him not long afterwards. And I really liked Mr. Kadrovac. I thought that he was a charming individual. I thought that he was interesting to speak with. If you've ever seen, if you've ever read the book or seen one of the movie adaptations for The Life of Walter Mitty, that is very similar to how I would say Robert Kadrovac approached life. Robert Kadrovac was one of those people who, in his mind, things happened to. Um, among some of the stories that he told me were that... Um, a helicopter landed in his backyard once uh, that he had a million dollar settlement that he was cheated out of by an ex-girlfriend. Um, the prevailing one that, that constantly would continue throughout the course of this representation and this trial was that um, he was constantly dying. He, he did have he did have a pacemaker. And he was convinced that every time the pacemaker would fire up, it, he had died and that was bringing him back to death. So he, he had this idea that he was a walking time bomb, uh, that he was always moments away from death no matter what was going on. That pacemaker kept bringing him back. Um, so that's, that's kind of just a, a quick overview of, of the way that that he approached his 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 way of life for much the same re well not maybe not exactly the same reasons uh, because of course the state has its own theories and i have mine um i also thought that it would be worthwhile to have him examined not only for competency to stand trial but also for whether or not he met the legal definition of insanity at the time that this situation happened 
And part of the other reason, the major, the single major reason that I thought that this was an appropriate thing is one of the first things that Mr. Cadillac told me about his case is that he was the victim of a conspiracy by a racist IMPD police officer who wanted his hot dog corner for uh, the, the IMPD officer's cousins. So Mr. Kadrovac was a victim wow. of reverse racism over a hot dog stand war. Wow. Okay. That's some might say a reach, but here we go. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Saying it's a reach is, is perhaps a very polite way of phrasing it, uh, but he was, he was adamantly convinced. He's, he is convinced to this day. The last time that I saw him was at his PCR trial back in, um, early in January, 2021. It's a little over mm-hmm. a year ago. It's the last time I saw him and he still is adamantly convinced that an IMPD officer, and, and I know what the officer's name is. And, and I, yes, that's part of the public record, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to be that guy that calls someone sure. completely innocent out on this. He was convinced that this officer was trying to steal his, his hot dog stand and his hot dog corner and his hot dog empire, <laughs> which again, if, if you can come up with $10,000 in bail money, plus, you know, the, I, I won't go into what my retainer was at the time and that fee. And if you pay all those for the hot dog cart, you're apparently doing something right. So maybe the hot dog Some, business really is something, Something's got to be right. But it, it, and it wasn't helped by the fact that just because it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't helped by the fact either that the officer that he was convinced was conspiring against him in this racist hot dog conspiracy was one of the officers who reported to the scene of the stabbing because that happened oh. to be his beat. That's how he kept seeing this particular sure. officer. Sure, sure. It, well, I mean, hey, that throws an interesting little variable into the mix here. So where where do we go from here? I mean, you've got Kadrovac throwing out a little bit of some some reaches, shall we say. Uh, and then you've also got, you know, the, the case itself at hand, the indictment that came down against it. Where do we go from here, Jack? Well, we did our job. Um, anytime that we pick up a case, uh, you know, we, we do what we did first with here with Mr. Kadrovac. We interview our client. We make a determination as to, okay, this is what the state says happened. This is what you're telling me happened. The truth is probably somewhere here in the middle. How do we build this up? Other things that Mr. Kadrovac told me were that there were a number of surveillance videos in the area, uh, cameras that would capture everything that was going on for security purposes. He also gave me a list of name and telephone numbers that he claimed were witnesses that he had tracked down himself in the intervening time between the, um, the incident in June and the indictment being filed in August. So what we did is we did our job. We, we, put, we put feet on the ground, um, ears on the phones. I called, I called probably about 15 different names that Mr. Kadrovac provided to me. Most of the numbers that he provided to me were disconnected. Um, other numbers, we never got a response, or if we did get a response back, they would say that they don't know who we were talking about or who we were looking for. The area where the um, stabbing took place is part of, of the, the nightclub corridor on South Meridian, South Meridian Street here in Indianapolis. 
so I did go around and I did knock on the doors and talk to the managers of the various different uh, establishments that were there trying to figure out whether or not they had security cameras, whether or not there was footage that was available to us. Um, there was a Mr. Kadrovac provided me with the name of someone that he claimed was a security officer at the Slippery Noodle. Uh, when I went to the Slippery Noodle, they indicated that not only do they not have cameras, they don't have anyone working with the name that was provided to me. Um, we did everything that we could to try to locate any of this footage, and it was not there, um, That which, which just fueled his conspiracy concept. His, his conspiracy sure, was that IMPD, and, and specifically this, this, uh, this anti-hot dog IMPD officer, Mm-hmm. got to the footage first and all we needed to do is subpoena IMPD and tell them to give us that footage and we would have it. That's about where I started putting my foot down a little bit on the concept of we're not going to do something that's just not feasible. And, and mm-hmm. that's a decision tactically that we have to make as trial attorneys sometimes is where do we sure. spend where do we spend our resources? Where do we spend our our efforts? And having not located any of the witnesses that that he claimed would testify on his behalf, not having found the existence of any security footage that he claimed existed, the idea that a single lone IMPD patrol officer in some way, shape, or form wielded enough power to collect surveillance footage from all these places that said they don't have it and then hide it Mm -hmm. like some sort of crazy mafia protection racket that was a step too far at that point in time we had tried to run that down the next step was to turn our attention to what were we going to be able to do um beyond that and Mm -hmm. during this process we get the competency and and uh insanity evaluations back from the doctors okay We'll probably do a, a more full episode on the issue of insanity and what that represents as an affirmative defense in the future. Sure, I would love to. But, but very briefly, um, in Indiana, that defense has two sides to it. The first is, are you competent to stand trial? Mm-hmm. And the second is, are were you insane at the time of the offense? Competency to stand trial means that you are aware of what's going on. Mm-hmm. You are aware of the potential penalties that can be imposed, That's which is part of knowing what's going on. Um, you can identify the various people who are involved in the system. And your kind of broad catch-all is you are capable of assisting your attorney in the preparation of your defense. That is an incredibly low bar. The, the sure. likelihood that someone is going to be found incompetent to stand trial in Indiana is ridiculously low. In in mm-hmm. 16 years, I think I've done I've done five of these cases. And only oh, wow. one of them that I thought the client was actually incompetent to stand trial because he had he had an extremely severe learning disability and at the age of 27 had the mental processing capabilities of a 10-year-old. Mm-hmm. And he was still found competent to stand trial. Wow. So that's, okay. that's, that's that's how low this pardon was. So Mr. Kadrovac very easily clears that aspect. Of it. Sure. With regards to the insanity prong of that concept, to, to fit in the definition of not guilty by reason of insanity in Indiana, you have to be suffering from an identified mental illness that's recognized by whatever the current version of the DSM is. That's the, that's the major psychiatric uh, manual of, of mental diseases and defects. 
Um, you have to have been suffering from a recognized mental illness at the time of the incident. And that mental illness had to make it impossible for you to appreciate the wrongfulness of your actions. Um, the report back from the two court appointed doctors who examined Mr. Kadravac in Indiana, you have to be examined by a psychologist and a psychiatrist or appointed by the court who report back. Both of them found that Mr. Kadravac suffered from assorted mental health issues, including uh, paranoid delusions of grandeur and uh, antisocial personality disorder, which were things that we all kind of knew going in, but mm -hmm. that did not rise to the level of not being able to appreciate the wrongfulness of his actions. So the issue sure. of does this rise to the level of, you know, if he had been responsible for the stabbing, do those mental illnesses prevent that from being something that would find him legally culpable? And the answer was no. So mm -hmm. that issue was resolved. The issue of finding um, all of these, these witnesses is resolved. The issue of finding security footage is that's resolved. So now mm -hmm. the issue is just basically we have to start taking the next steps and just preparing this case like we would with any other case where we don't have those things offered to us by our client. When mm -hmm. our clients tell us that, hey, talk to these people, sure. they'll back my story up. We love to see those things. Of Most course. of the time we don't. Most of the time we don't have that. So once those once those options have been exhausted, uh, we're now into we're now into uh, early 20, early to mid 2015 at this point in time. So it's been about a year to get to this point. Uh, from the original indictment. Now it's basically a situation of, okay, these preliminary issues are out of the way. Now we have to actually start the the general trial building strategy and and kind of moving forward with that. Mm -hmm. So so in terms of building that strategy out, Jack, what, what did that look like for you guys? What was the, what were some of the tactics that you took? What, what was your angle moving into trial as as you know that date was inevitably approaching? Well, the first thing that we did is we looked at, uh, we deposed the other witnesses. So we set depositions for Miss um, Gregory, Mr. Grigsby, Mr. Hunter, Mr. Island, and Mr. McCampbell, because the number one thing when you are participating in a trial that you never want to do is you never want to ask a question that you don't know the answer to. And knowing that all of these individuals were going to be people that would be providing testimony, I needed to know what their testimony was in advance. So what we did is, um, this is on June 12th of 2015, we spent the entire afternoon deposing these individuals. And naturally, because it's just a coincidence where the stars completely align, Mr. Kadravac happened to run into Frank McCampbell the day before those depositions and helped him to remember things about the night um, that all this happened. That's not a good thing. Um, I will never tell a client to not help with the preparation of their defense. Usually one of the main reasons why we share information with our clients is because we weren't there. So obviously for us to do the best possible job, we naturally need to give the, that information to our clients. That is not a license to go out and help by playing detective or talking to witnesses yourself. Mm -hmm. And that kind of created an issue. And the prosecutor who 
was remarkably patient, um, did not file a motion to hold Mr. Kajrak in contempt of court for tampering with a witness. Uh, but it was very clear that Frank McCampbell's testimony was very highly, um, very highly influenced by Robert Kajrak. The other important thing that happens with the deposition is usually it's the first opportunity that I have to actually see these people. You got to remember the concept of having body cameras and dash cams on everything. That's a relatively new phenomenon. Even in 2014 with smartphones becoming a lot more ubiquitous and people always having a camera in their pocket, things aren't always being filmed the way they are now. So back in 2014, 2015, unless there's a mugshot or some sort of other, you know, like security footage or something like that, I don't see people until I either hear them at a deposition or I see them at a trial. So this was the first opportunity that I had to look at these individuals and kind of get a, a optical mock-up of how this is going to look. Um, Robert Kadravac himself was in his, I believe that he was in his late 40s, or early 50s. Um, he was not a healthy individual is, is again, a polite way of phrasing it. He was, uh, extremely overweight. Um, you know, he had some glandular issues. Um, he was not, you know, no one, no one would ever have looked at him and said, Hey, that's a healthy guy right over there. Conversely, Mr. Walker's friends never missed a day at the gym. These were individuals who, if you were sculpting them out of stone, these are the people that are drunkenly getting into an argument at the hot dog cart on the night when all of this goes down. Mm -hmm. So the first thing that popped in my head after doing the deposition, because the other thing the deposition does for us is it helps us determine, okay, this is the strategy we want to go with. This is the trial strategy that we're going with. Right. First thing that popped in my head was this would be a great self-defense case. If you look mm. at the optics, you have a guy who you, you have an old hot dog man who is not healthy mm -hmm. and you have, you know, five extremely young fit chiseled chiseled <laughs> yep. drunks at three mm -hmm. in the morning arguing with them about you poured jalapeno juice on my sneakers it seemed like a great case for a self-defense argument why do i feel like there's a butt coming because of course there's a butt <laughs> self-defense as as we as we discussed in an earlier episode the problem that you have with self-defense is you have to acknowledge that you did in fact cause the injury that's the rule you cannot claim self-defense if you were claiming that you did not actually commit the battery offense. It is a sure. burden-shifting affirmative defense that mm. acknowledges that you had something to do with that person's injury. Robert Kadrivac from day one was absolutely adamant that he never once handled the knife that stabbed Andre Walker. His version of events was that he had the knife at the beginning of the fight the knife was taken away from him and that's the last that he saw of the knife. And then everyone kind of falls down into a pile and Anjay Walker walks off with the knife in his head, but mm -hmm. he was absolutely adamant that he was not responsible for stabbing him. He mm -hmm. did not have the knife in his hands when he stabbed him. 
and uh, they were trying to kill him, and that's yeah. that was all well, there was to it. There goes the self defense claim, you know, right out the window. It made it extremely difficult. So what we were left with, we were left with what's referred to as a sufficiency of the evidence argument. And sufficiency of the evidence is basically um, you're arguing, your, your argument, generally speaking, would be that the state of Indiana or your local prosecutor's office has failed to produce sufficient evidence to prove each element of the crime beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm-hmm. Even without the self-defense argument, attempted murder, as well as aggravated battery, requires that there be a specific attempt to harm someone, which means that the state of Indiana needs to prove that this defendant is responsible for that injury. So what we were what we were left with going on was uh, what we would refer to as an actual innocence claim. Very briefly speaking, battery offenses are defended by one of three ways. You can argue that no battery happened. Uh, you can argue that the battery happened, but some third party was responsible for the battery. Or you can argue that you were responsible for the battery, but you had the legally justifiable reason for it, which is your self-defense. It was very clear that there was an injury here. You cannot argue that a battery was not what happened here because very clearly Mr. Walker was stabbed in the skull. That left us on option two, which is that, okay, the battery clearly happened, but we're not responsible for it. Someone else was responsible for it. That's your actual innocence claim. And that's a claim that could have worked. And it works in a lot of situations, especially in these barroom brawl type fights. Mm -hmm. The argument would have been, okay, here's what we know. We know that there's a brawl. We know that everyone falls down into a pile. We know that Robert Kadravac denies ever having had his hands on the knife. And there's not a single person who put that knife in his hand. Let's argue that there's just insufficient evidence to show that he's responsible for it. Um, they can't prove it because they can't prove that he had the knife. That's our new, that's our new trial strategy. That sounds great. That seems amazing. And then the other shoe dropped. So hit us with this. What is the other shoe? And, and, uh, and, and does it have any sort of curveball really that comes with it in terms of, uh, of leading up to, to the big moment in trial? Oh my, it does. If you remember, if you remember Jody Kinsley, who was the woman that took the affidavit that Frank McCampbell took the affidavit to the grand jury on, Mm -hmm. on August 20, 21st of, uh, of 2014, the, the grand jury exhibit 24, Jody Kinsley comes back up. And the reason that Jody Kinsley comes back up is on July 14th of 2015, the Marion County Prosecutor's Office files what's referred to as a notice of intent to offer evidence of consciousness of guilt. Evidence of consciousness of guilt is, it's it's a byproduct or offshoot of character evidence. The idea is that these circumstantial issues surrounding what the defendant or did or did not do indicate that they are aware that they have done something illegal and they are trying to cover it up and hide it by any means necessary. Um, Issues where you'll see with that are, you know, the Hollywood version of this is if uh, a person's spouse is murdered and the next day they clean their bank accounts out and they buy a plane ticket to a non-extraditable country, 
um, and the police just heroically stop them before they're able to get on the plane. That's consciousness of guilt evidence. The idea is like what you're doing is so overwhelmingly suspicious given uh-huh. the surrounding circumstances that we are going to consider this to be you telegraphing that you did something wrong. Jody Kinsley fell into that category. Jody Kinsley, as it turns out, um, was a prostitute who was actually in jail on the day that Anjay Walker was stabbed. Oh, boy. So not only is it not possible for her to have witnessed this fight, mm-hmm. Robert Kajavak has basically just convinced somebody to perjure him. And the officers, the, the, the detective, they they found out these, the system's a lot more electronic these days. It's a lot easier for us to find these things out than it was back eight years ago. Sure. Um, previously, things like jail records, who was in jail, who was out of jail when, those were much more heavily in the province of the prosecutor's office in the state than they were with us. So mm-hmm. naturally, they were not telling us that they had been investigating for almost a year, for over a year, nearly a year at this point, mm-hmm. um, that story until I get hit with the notice of intent to offer the uh, the, the evidence of guilt, consciousness of guilt. Um, the detective assigned to the case had been diligently looking for her since August until she got arrested again. And he interviewed her at the jail and she initially stuck to her story. She initially stuck to the story that, no, I absolutely did witness that. When presented with these certified records and told that here's what you're doing right now, you're just facing misdemeanor charges. If you stick to this, we will charge you with perjury, which is a felony offense, and you will go to prison as opposed to going to probation. Mm. That broke her right then and there, and she admitted that so. <laughs> that she you know, she admitted that uh, she had been a uh, she had been patronized by Mr. Kadravac. Um, he asked her to provide this letter, um, and he paid her to do it. And now that's the next thing that we have to deal with. Going back to the way that um, Mr. Kadravac viewed basically everything in his life kind of just sort of happening to him as opposed to him being an active participant in his, mm-hmm. in his own life events. When I presented all this to him, his argument was like, well, she came up to me and she offered to do that for me because she knows I'm a good guy. And I'm just, I'm watching everything that we've built over the last years, just start up um. again, slowly crumble around the edges Mm-hmm. of this is why it's like this this is not helping it's like no no one, no this is a silver yeah. bullet here oh man so, that so, did not work well yeah i can imagine so so here you are you're you, the case you feel it starting to kind of crumble with this walk me through trial what does this look like for you guys jack and and what is what is his uh what's the verdict that ultimately gets reached well, um, the last major thing that happens before the trial is on September 11th of 2015, uh, sorry, 2014, the state of Indiana gave uh, Miss Kinsley what's referred to as a use immunity agreement. They basically said that in exchange for your truthful testimony, we're not, gonna, we're not going to file perjury charges against you. We... Did we we pulled out the last Hail Mary that we had for it? We went to we argued in front of uh, of the presiding judge that the Marion County prosecutor's use immunity for perjury 
was insufficient because there was a uh, federal perjury statute as well. And only the U.S. attorney could grant use immunity. And the state is exposing Ms. Kinsley to federal perjury charges, and she should still be exercising her right to remain silent. Uh, that didn't work. She gets her use immunity. We are now bound for trial. The trial is set. It's a two-day trial. It is on um, July 15th and 16th of 2015. Those are the trial dates. We did everything we could. Um, we put up a fight as best we could. Uh, Mr. Kadrovac was not exactly helping his defense. Um, he had a a big gulp, like from Seven Eleven, mm-hmm. and he was he was rather loudly drinking it at the defense table. No matter how many times I told him to stop doing that. Um, it looked like, you know, there's so much of these cases are optics. Um, you know, we tried to work with him to find clothes that were going to fit that looked good. The clothes that we helped him try to find, uh, or tried to help him find, he was not wearing those. He was wearing a a suit that had not seen it. It it, it had long since seen his better days. Mm -hmm. Um, and he had a tendency to stage whisper, um, by which I mean, if anyone anyone who's watching this has any experience on on stage, a stage whisper is a whisper that you are pantomiming on the stage, but it's meant to actually be heard by the audience what's saying. Mm-hmm. So constantly, I'm hearing about how that witness is lying, or that witness has it in for me, or that doesn't happen. And again, these courtrooms aren't large. You know, the jury sure. the jury is maybe you know, the jury is maybe, you know, 15 yards away from where we're sitting. Yeah. yeah. And, and all this stuff is just really not working out well. It's, it's not helping him, but it's, like you had said, the optics yeah. from the optics to the, the first impressions from a jury standpoint, yeah. it sounds like he's not, he's not helping himself by any means. He uh, was to, not. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the final two witnesses of the state call, they told, they called Jody Kinslow who testified about how, she had been paid to provide that affidavit for Mr. Kadrovac. And if that wasn't bad enough, the last witness that the state of Indiana called was Andre Walker himself. Andre Walker did not die. He did, in fact, okay. survive. Um, it, he, there was, we did not depose him because even in September, even back in in 2015, it was it was very apparent that he was not going to be capable. He he suffered serious permanent mental damage as a result. I'm of sure. It. I don't always believe prosecutors when they tell me something. I will believe the prosecutor in this case. Um, the prosecutor told me that he was not intending to call the Mr. Walker until the last possible second because he was there. Mr. Walker comes out and the way that this particular courtroom is set up, the, ju- the, the jury box is to the right, perpendicular to the right of the witness stand. Mm-hmm. Um, the area where Mr. Walker was stabbed is, is in his right temple. So to save his life, they actually had to remove a section of his skull and a section of his brain. Wow. And this is right next to the jury. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, he did his best. Mr. Walker did his best to testify about what happened. Um, he was very clearly befuddled. And that was that was the end of it as far as we didn't cross-examine. There was not going to be any benefit of cross-examining him. Sure. Um, we let that one go as quickly as possible. But if anything, uh, it seems like that was a good opportunity for for the prosecution uh, from an optics standpoint. Uh, oh, it absolutely that, was. You know, yeah. to put that injury right, literally right in front of the jury. Um, it absolutely was. Mm -hmm. um, right before, you know, it's time to talk about a verdict. Exactly. So the state rested after that. Um, we had we we went into recess. I went back to the uh, the court offices to speak with Mr. Catterback. I explained to him again. You know, we cannot pursue a self-defense argument because you have indicated that you were never actually in possession of the knife at the time of the stabbing. Um, if I put you on the witness stand right now, you were exposed to a significant amount of very damaging cross-examination based off mm -hmm. of Jimmy Kinsley's story. The best thing for you to do is simply not testify and allow for us to just rest and make her closing arguments. He agreed at that time. Um, we'll get back to when he decides he stops agreeing with me later. Sure. Uh, but he agreed at that time. Uh, we come back. We do our closing arguments. Um, I, you know, we did, we did, again, we did everything that we possibly could with it. We made mm -hmm. a sizable argument on the issue of the state cannot prove that Robert Kadravac held the knife at the time of the stabbing. The state can't prove that Robert Kadravac ever held the knife. Robert Kadravac's got defensive injuries on his hands, which makes it seem like he's not the one that's swinging this yeah. knife around. But the optics, I think at the end of the day, really largely worked against us. And that sure. is an unfortunate reality of these things. The jury came back with guilty on both counts. If anyone in our audience is old enough to have ever seen the show Sanford and Son, um, Red Fox is uh, one of the main actors on that. Uh, Red Fox uh, was famous for, for clutching his chest and screaming that he was having a heart attack and that he was coming, Elizabeth, because this was the big one. The second the jury read that verdict, uh, we got a full-on Red Fox oh, meltdown boy. in the courtroom. Oh, the boy. Bailiffs, the bailiffs had to remove Mr. Kadravac. The jury is uncomfortably standing there, shuffling their feet, mm -hmm. trying to figure out what's going on next. Um, the second verdict, if I recall correctly, was actually read without Mr. Kadravac in the courtroom. Um, wow. And you could hear him still wailing back in the bullpen on that. Mm -hmm. So that was the trial. Man. What so so he gets handed those two guilty verdicts. Right. He's at, you know he's carried out by the bailiffs. What what is where do we go from here? I would you know we've talked about the appeal process. I would imagine Mr. Kadravac, given the nature that you've described throughout the entirety of today's episode, you know he would want to appeal this. You know we go through set you know obviously sentencing has to happen. Then they talk to me about that really the aftermath of of those verdicts being read. Well, um, that's the verdicts being read is technically the end of my involvement with the case. Okay. Um, the way that the the way that sentencing works in Indiana is if you were found guilty of a crime, especially if it's a felony offense, the court will not proceed immediately to sentencing. They have to prepare a document that's referred to as a pre-sentence investigation report. That pre-sentence investigation report um, will provide the court with kind of a background on things like criminal history. That's definitely the most important one. Uh, recommended programs, either at the Department of Corrections or on probation. 
um, you know, other types of services that a person might need. Uh, and that's that takes time to get done. Again, it's it takes less time now, but this is back eight years ago. It, the, the world in a lot of ways is extremely different than it was eight years ago. So I was actually fired before we got to the sentencing hearing. Um, I was fired from this case on September 28 of 2015. Um, there was there was another attorney who was hired at that point in time, and the sentencing hearing took place on October 9th of 2015. Mr. Kadrovac was sentenced to the advisory sentence of 30 years on the attempted murder charge. The minimum sentence of 20 years was ordered to be executed in the Indiana Department of Corrections. Uh, 10 years of that would be suspended to Marion County Community Corrections Home Detention. So he had a fully executed sentence, 20 years at the, in prison, 10 years on an ankle monitor. This is under the old criminal code. So he had to, uh, he, he got 50% of the time. He only had to do 50% of the time on this case. Um, so he's, he was out of that 30 year sentence, he was looking at a total of 15 years. The class B felony for aggravated battery, the court merged into the attempted murder charge. There is a mechanism that, that controls Indiana double jeopardy law with regards to the concept of merging of convictions. Um, and that's what happened because, because all the elements for aggravated battery were also in the more serious attempted murder charge. It would have been a violation of double jeopardy for him to have convictions on both of them. So the aggravated battery conviction was vacated by operational law merged into the, um, merged into the attempted murder charge. And, uh, that was the end of the case at that point in time. You are correct, Mr. Kadrovac appealed, appealed the case. The appeal, the direct appeal was handled by the Marion County Public Defender Agency. The direct mm -hmm. appeal was filed on uh, October 26 of 2015. The trial court's decision was upheld by the Court of Appeals on May 13th of 2016. The next thing that Mr. Kadrovac tried to do was he appealed for transfer to the Indiana Supreme Court. Uh, as, as we talked about during our, our discussion on appeals, um, if you don't like what the Court of Appeals says, you can always try to appeal to the next highest court, which is usually the state Supreme Court. The state Supreme Court denied transfer in uh, on January 19th of 2017, which meant that now the next thing that would happen would be the PCR process. Sure, sure. So What's that look like for him? What Mr. Kadrak did, he filed a uh, he filed a petition for post conviction relief on uh, on October 6 of 2017. The um, the PCR had two different elements to it. There was the ineffective assistance of counsel, which was basically arguing that my uh, my performance in investigating his case, trying his case, was deficient, and uh, that he also received ineffective assistance of appellate counsel, mm. arguing that the appeal that he wanted was not done appropriately. So that takes years to get through the process. I think we talked about this before. PCRs are incredibly long. They're incredibly time consuming. They're not high priorities mm -hmm. for the courts. His trial on this takes place on January 6 of 2021. So his PCR hearing takes wow. place three and a half years after he files it. Three and a half years later. Wow. I got the subpoena literally the day before I was called in to testify. Wow. Okay. Hope you didn't and, have any plans the next day. And the fun story with that is um, he hired another private attorney to help him with the PCR. Mm -hmm. 
that private attorney, when I received the subpoena via a process server, told me that she had been trying to get in contact with me for the better part of six months. And the way that she had apparently been trying to get in contact with me is she had been sending written correspondence to an office that I had not been at for about five years at that point in time. Wow. So never mind the fact that, you know, I'm, I am literally one of the easiest people in Indianapolis to find. I've spent a lot of time making sure that people can <laughs> find me if they want to have an attorney. Sure. A Google search for my name would have given you my telephone number and my address. Mm -hmm. um, the role of attorneys would have given you my telephone number and my address. This was not something that this attorney had put that minimal effort in. In fact, the process server went to my old office and had to be told by folks who were still in that space that, no, he hasn't been here for five years. He's three right. buildings that way. So, <laughs> Oh, my goodness. So that's, that's the next part of the hot dog man saga. So we do have, you know, we do the testimony. We do that. Mm -hmm. um, the Court of Appeals, not the Court of Appeals, the, the trial court um, – denied the motion for post-conviction relief on mm -hmm. April 22nd of 2021. Um, the judge who oversaw that uh, oversaw that trial basically said, it looks like Mr. Azimich did literally everything humanly possible on this case, which is always gratifying to hear. Sure. Um, it was appealed directly to the uh, Indiana Court of Appeals on May 11th of 2021. Again, remember, um, you can appeal a PCR just like you can appeal an original case. That mm -hmm. decision, the decision from the Court of Appeals was handed down on December 30th of 2021. Um, they upheld the trial court. And this is this is this is my favorite part of this. This is this is just my own personal vanity on this one. <laughs> um, the Court of Appeals, when they're discussing the issue of my not pursuing a self-defense argument, uh, the quotation from a published decision is given that Kadrovac was adamant that he did not handle the knife used in the stabbing, it was not unreasonable, and arguably it was prudent that trial counsel would not argue self-defense, but instead pursued the mens rea and insufficient evidence defenses. So I literally have had the, the Indiana Court of Appeals like, nah, man, he did a good job. You know, he did, he did it right. Uh, well, that's, a, yes, a pat on the back to you for, you know, trying to make the best of a, of a tough situation. Tough being the optimum word here. Uh, <laughs> you but you're not kidding. And yeah, then, yeah. so that finished that. And then uh, the the Indiana Supreme Court uh, denied transfer on uh, the PCR case on February mm -hmm. 24th of 2022. So literally, as we're recording, we're recording this on March 8th. So literally like two weeks ago, no, like maybe three weeks, two and a half-ish weeks, so something like that. The saga of the hot dog man finally came to a close. And there wow. is nothing more to be said about that. Now it's a great story, which thank we, you know, of course, thank you for sharing all these right. details with us. My final question is we're kind of wrapping today's episode up now, Jack, where is the hot dog man? Where, where, where is he right now? He is still uh, held at the Indiana department of corrections. He mm -hmm. is not scheduled for release from DOC until February 1st of 2025. So in uh, roughly three years, he'll be released from prison. He will have to report back to Marion County Community Corrections, which is here in Indianapolis, at which point in time he will start serving his executed sentence on Community Corrections, which he'll have five years of home detention GPS monitoring. 
Uh, he is in extremely good health. Um, every great once in a while, he writes a letter to me. Sometimes those letters are accusatory. Sometimes they're more funny. He's, I, like I said, I, I don't have any ill will towards him. Sure. I actually like Mr. Kadrovac. I think that he was a nice guy. I think that... I think that he put himself in a bad position that he might not have needed to if he had just mm -hmm. sort of stepped back and let us do our job on the case. Yeah. Um, I, I think as far as wrap-up notes that I would say for anyone listening, again, good attorneys want you to be part of the process. You know, a good attorney is going to involve you in the decision-making. He's going to involve you in uh, understanding what's going on and why things are going on. Um please just let us do our job and and not help um in the concept of if you have witnesses just let us know about it don't go talk to witnesses yourself uh don't pay prostitutes to lie for you uh, that never works out um and and honestly if we say that you've got a good self-defense argument, maybe think about whether or not you actually did have that knife, because I'm pretty sure this case absolutely could have been won um, if Mr. Kadrabek had not been adamant about how he was not in possession of that knife. Mm -hmm. It still could have been won on the sufficiency of the evidence. I think that the major optics were very bad with regards to Mr. Sure. Walker having the very serious injury right there in front of the jury mm -hmm. and Mr. Kadrabek not presenting himself as, as anything other than... A, a very skittish, very scared, and, and he's right to be scared. I'm not saying that he wasn't, but again, it's it, we we coach our clients on body language, on on posture, things like that for the trial. Mm -hmm. None of that was listened to at all. Sure. It, it just kind of went out the window, and and I do feel bad for him. I feel bad for Mr. Walker as well. You know, either either Mr. Walker was intentionally stabbed or he was accidentally stabbed. In either set of circumstances, that poor young man's life has never been the same. Sure. Um, I don't know what happened to him. I'm sorry to say, but mm -hmm. yeah, that's that's that is the curious case of the hot dog man and all of its glory. Well, Jack, I appreciate you carving some time out of today to, to be with us and to, to dive into this curious case. I know it's one that we've been looking forward to touching on this show. But hey, before we wrap up today, uh, for anybody you know with us in our audience, um, you know, obviously we, we've heard your performance on you know in your involvement in with this case, if anybody out there is interested in, in looking you guys up and, and maybe having a conversation about any sort of opportunity really, or a case that might, uh, you know, they might need your representation on, what would you say would be the best way they could go ahead and get in touch with you? Best way to get in touch with us as always is to call our office at area code three, one, seven, nine eight three five three 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 we do have operators that answer our telephones 24 hours a day seven days a week um senior staff will prioritize returning telephone calls as soon as possible during regular business hours if you call over the weekend um one of my one of my evening staff members will get that message they will pass along to me if it's an emergency i will absolutely work on the weekends and get back to you um but yeah, that telephone number is the fastest way of reaching us. Someone's always answering. You're never going to get a voicemail. You're always going to get a live person who's going to make sure your information gets to where it needs to be. Don't send process service addresses that I haven't been at for five years. <laughs> Literally, we are the most findable people on sure. the internet. 
Oh man. Well, now Jack, thank you so much again for, for taking some time today to, to walk us through the curious case of the hot dog man. And, uh, you know, Hey, for all our audience, keep an eye out on the Razumich and associates Facebook page for more updates on when we'll be cranking out another episode here, where we'll dive into another case study, but, uh, Jack, thank you again. And looking forward to the next one. Absolutely. Same here. And hey, look, audience, one more time, we want to thank you guys for jumping aboard with us today. If you liked today's discussion, you took anything away from it, maybe you just flat out enjoyed the curious case of the hot dog man. I know I did. Uh, hey, do us a favor, like the show, comment on it on whichever platform you're checking us out on, subscribe to it, of course, that way you don't miss any future episodes. And then, of course, share, always click that share button, share this information with friends and family, anybody that you think would find these, uh, you know, these conversations, these case studies beneficial or, or you know, just full of entertainment uh you know at the end of the day jack and i we've got a great great set of episodes teed up for you moving forward and we hate to have you miss out on any great stuff so for mr jack Razovich, i'm ryan ruff we're going to go ahead and say so long but we appreciate you being with us on today's installment of closing arguments